The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll be. If you want to take out your Bible and turn there, there should be a Bible in front of you if you don't have one in the pew rack there. You can take that and use that. If you don't have a Bible, take it home with you, and that can become yours. So feel free to do that. Ephesians chapter 2. We really are entering some amazing passages as we get into this. And uh, in my studies this week, I was really <clears throat> thinking what would be best would maybe be to give you some sermons to listen to this week. Uh, there's a lot of people who do a lot better than me uh, in preaching these, uh, these passages. But for some reason, God has worked it out where I'm the one here. I'm the pastor here, and I get to be the one to preach it. Uh, but there are a lot of good messages out there in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, I could give you, I guess, a bunch of names, but I'm not, not going to do that. But I encourage you maybe to seek that out. It really is a blessing. I'll share with you what I, what I think is I plan this morning to share with you the best news ever given. Really, I do. Uh, the best thing that has ever been said or done in the history of mankind, I plan to share that with you this morning. You're not going to hear it anywhere else other than in, hopefully, local churches. Uh, and, but to get there can be uh, a little difficult. Uh, can be difficult maybe even to understand. Because I really only plan this morning to look at the first three verses of chapter, of chapter 2. We're going to read a little bit more. Uh, but it can be difficult of what will be uh, said, but it, it need not be, because it what, it's what leads then to the best news. And without understanding what we'll look at this morning, uh, the best news isn't the best news. It's just news. It's just something. Follow along with me. Uh, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 2, but like I said, we're not going to get through it all uh, today. We will over the next few weeks. <clears throat> it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Youth, I would encourage you to pay attention the next few weeks because this is uh, what will be preached at youth camp as well in June. This will be our passages, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Pastor Scott will be preaching them, uh, but it will help you, as you know, throughout the week with Quiz Bowl and different things. Maybe memorize this. might be helpful to you uh, as well. I think you just went through it in Sunday school also. And so there's no excuses to get anything wrong at youth camp uh, this year. Uh, I'm just warning you ahead of time. 
What Paul just did is he, in chapter one, he kind of wrapped up speaking this just grand thing that we, that we looked at together. And really what we see is in chapter one, Paul introduces us to God. But now as we get to chapter two, he introduces us to humanity. Uh, it really is, like I said, I think it can be a dreadful task to preach the passage that I have to preach this morning uh, because of how it's took, uh, because of what we are going to hear. As we learn about humanity, you really learn some difficult truths about ourselves, about the people that we come in contact with, about the people that we love. Uh, but it is true, and I don't want to say a dreadful task in saying I don't want to preach this passage, uh, but a dreadful task in how it's perceived oftentimes, because this is very important for us to get and to understand. The reason I say dreadful is because oftentimes when I talk to different people at our church, whether it's uh, guests or uh, members or people who've been with us for a really long time, uh, recently, probably the biggest complaint that I get about our services is people will say something like, we need to make it more lively. We, we need to pep it, pep it up a little bit, maybe is what we say. You know, we get a little pep in our step. We, we need something like that. Maybe, maybe give us a message uh, about the issues of today. You know, speak to those issues and tell us then what the, what the Bible has to say about that. Or maybe in the summer we could do a fun sermon series on different movies that are out and the theology that would, you know, would uh, integrate with these movies. And you could talk about that. That'd be very relevant. And, and it would help us as we, as we leave and as we go out of there. And it's hard for me when I hear that, if I'm being quite honest, I understand where people are coming from. It's very depressing out there in our world today. Not too much to look forward to, or they'll say, they'll tell us, you know, well, in six weeks, it'll be more normal. And we get our hopes up and we find out that's not true. We got another six weeks and another six weeks, another eight weeks. And it's really dreadful. You know, we have a lot of things going on within our community with deaths recently with COVID. And so I understand the desire to want to come to church with the hopes that when we leave this place, we feel great. I get that desire. But it shows me, when I feel that way as well, it shows me a problem within myself. And I think it shows me a problem within our, within our church culture in general that we really seem to fail to grasp what really is the main problem in humanity. What, what really is the reason why we walk through these doors on Sunday morning? We have a failure, I think, oftentimes to understand who we are and what God has done, to really get a grasp of what has taken place, what God has given us in his word, what has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. I think it's a failure that we struggle with to realize that when we walk into this room together corporately, we come in here to worship God, not me, not you. I don't come in here this morning. I, I, that's a lie because this does happen, but I shouldn't come in here ever to please you and you shouldn't come in here to please me. Now, don't get me wrong. That's part of it. That's part of being a church. We love each other. We encourage each other. We care for one another. That happens on Sunday morning. At least it should. It needs to be. 
You know, we, just, we mentioned how uh, Lance Hoggins, he's lost three grandparents in a week and a half. We need to love him and care for him greatly. And that should be part of, of what we do. But when we gather on Sunday morning, we are here to worship the Lord, to praise him for what he has done. And this is the job of the, of the church. The job of the church is to, to worship God And not just that, but we worship God and then we tell the world the only message that we have to tell them. And the message that we have to tell them is this. It's it's not always a pretty one, but it's this. You need to repent and fall on your face before a holy God. Now, oftentimes that's pushed aside. Oftentimes uh, when we say that to people, they're going to say, no, I'm not interested in that. And there's many different reasons for that. But as Christians, as a church specifically, that really is the only message that we have. You need to repent before God because why? He's a wrathful God. He's a wrathful God against sin. And the fact is, you sin. I sin. We are sinners. And so we have to remember that as the church, as we approach everything in our culture, I think it was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this in his sermon uh, on on this passage, but he said, we can't allow culture to dictate what we preach and what we teach. It always has to start at the gospel message and everything flows first through that, not the other way around. So we don't take a movie and watch it and then say, how can this conform to my theology? No. That's not what the church does. Sadly, you'll see that. A lot of churches do that. That's their sermon series. That's what they focus on, these cultural issues. And again, I'm not saying it's bad to engage in cultural things, but when we gather as the church to do the job of the church, our focus is on the one big problem, and that is sin. That is sinners who need to repent before a holy God. And Paul would say in the passage that we are looking at, and you once was that. Now, as a church family, those of us who've been saved by God's grace, as we go through these first three verses, I want you to remember this as we go through them. This is what describes you. It's not what describes you any longer. And we'll get to that by the end of the message. But as we go through this, you realize that you have been saved from this by a holy God when you didn't deserve it. But there's a lot of people today still walking around who have not been saved by God. Maybe maybe some in here this morning. And so when we go through the first three verses, if you haven't trusted by faith in Jesus Christ, these first three verses that we're going to look at in depth today, it describes you. You say, well, are you trying to scare them? You should be scared, really, as we go through it. That, That should be a normal response to be very nervous and scared of what this is describing as, as me apart from God. But like I said, I also have the best news ever to share with you. And so we will, we will get there. I promise. The first three verses tell us about humanity and it talks about sin and it talks about it really in three different areas. The first thing when talking about our sin, it says following the course of this world. Following the course of this world, I put in parentheses next to this, a sin nature. All humans are sinners. We see that in the Bible. We can find that in many different places. It is what we do, and we seem to do it very well. We seem to be good at it. Besides Jesus Christ himself, 
There has never been anyone to walk the face of this earth or be on this earth who was not in sin, who did not sin. It's just something, it's just something that we cannot overcome. Many of parent has been so frustrated because you have tried your best to train your child to not be a sinner. And what do they do all the time? They sin. And it's so frustrating because you say it is easy. Don't do, don't do, don't do, 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 do. Just do that. But they don't. But maybe you've experienced that in your own life as well. You leave church on a Sunday morning. Pastor said, I should do this if I want to obey Christ. And by Sunday afternoon, you failed to do this. And you're frustrated with yourself. Why? Because you realize, hopefully in that moment, you are a sinner. And no amount of training, no amount of anything that you can put yourself to will make you accomplish the task of overcoming sin. Think about, think about the great feats in humanity that people can do. Look at our military and the, and the training that they put our men and women who are in the military, that they put them through to be able to accomplish just some amazing things. They train men and women to be able to be tortured and just go with it. That's, that is amazing to me. That's why I'm not in the military. That, I, you couldn't train me to do that. I'd be like, yeah, they're over there. I mean, it's just what would happen because pain isn't fun. But we actually have the ability to train people to do that, to keep their mouths shut when they are being put through a ton of pain. We, we've trained people to go without sleep and to keep going and going and going. You can train people in education to be able to build massive structures and buildings. There's, there's all kinds of great things mankind can do with some training. But one thing we've never been able to overcome is sin. So many people have tried. They've tried to follow the Bible word for word. They've tried to keep it the best that they can. Maybe that is you in your life, but you find out, don't you? You can't do it. It doesn't work. You cannot train yourself enough to not sin. So sin just simply cannot be overcome by anybody. Why is that? Well, because the Bible tells us in our sin, we are dead. And just a fact of the matter is a dead person cannot overcome anything. A, a dead person can do nothing for themselves. Why? Because they're dead. I don't think I need to explain that much farther. It makes complete sense when we think of it that way. Our first father, Adam, to put it simply, failed us. He failed us. He failed me. He failed you. He failed himself. He failed his family because he chose to sin. He chose to put himself before God. And on him hangs our lack of hope. He failed to follow, follow the father's will. He chose to listen to Satan. He chose to follow his fleshly desires. And as a result of that, he died. And when we think about it in that way, what we then need as a human race is we need someone who can reverse this. We need, we need somebody who will obey the father. We need somebody who will humble themselves to their own passions, their own fleshly desires, and be obedient 
to God. We need somebody who can overcome death, whatever that might look like. We need somebody to show us that this can be done. And if you sit here today in your sin and you've never trusted in in Christ, I hope you realize this morning you're not this person because you you've failed most of this list already probably in your life. You weren't able to obey the Father. You very rarely humble yourselves and don't give in to your passions and the things that are sinful. We need somebody to do this for us. Well, Paul doesn't just talk about following the course of this world. He takes it a step step further. Verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, when we see that phrase, we know that Paul is speaking of Satan here. And again, in parentheses, the first one was our sin nature. In parentheses here, I put, we follow our master. That's what we do. Paul points out that sinners have a master. And the master that they have is Satan himself. Jesus actually states this uh, very clearly uh, to the Pharisees and says, Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 42 through 47. It says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is describing the sinner. It's not comfortable for us to hear, but it is the truth. We want to believe, maybe you're sitting here today and and you want to believe that you are free to choose and do as you wish all the time. But yet the Bible tells us something drastically different. It says, hey, you don't get to choose what you want to do. You are a slave to sin and to your master, Satan, and you actually do the things he tells you to do. That's what you do. That's who you are. That's what Jesus would say to this very intellectual and religious group of Pharisees. Can you imagine them hearing that? They've devoted their whole life to scripture. They give all the ties. They go and they teach. They've done all the, everything that they're supposed to do all the time. And this guy who's supposed to be the Messiah looks them in the face and says, do you want to know who your father is? Satan. What? What? But it's the same message for us this morning, apart from Christ. You don't do what you want to do. You are actually a slave to sin. Earlier in John chapter 8, just a few verses before what I read, uh, Jesus would speak to them and it says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When you're a slave to that sin, sin is your master and you cannot overcome it. Again, you just, I've talked about this. You can't simply just choose, hey, I'm going to overcome sin today. 
doesn't work that way. The reason why, you are actually a slave to it. Sin isn't just your friend that comes along that you say, I'm not going to associate with you, you know, or this thing over there that you don't really like, but every once in a while you'll do something with it. That's not what sin is. Sin is your master and it directs you. But in thinking about that and in seeing that, I think the fair question would be, and maybe you're thinking this because I do as well, the natural fair question then is, why in the world am I held responsible then for my sin? If, if Satan is the master over it and he, I'm just a slave to sin and there's really nothing that I can do otherwise, then why would I be held responsible for my sin? I mean, maybe it should go to Adam. Maybe I should just throw it all on him. It's his fault anyways. Or maybe I should throw it on my parents. They, they taught me how to sin. Or maybe I should throw it on media or something. But it, it definitely looks like it shouldn't be thrown on me. But Paul speaks to that in verse 3. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You notice the phrase in there, living in the passions of the flesh. My answer to you that I think scripture would speak to is if you, were the, if you were to sit here and say, well, then I cannot be held responsible for my sin. How can you tell me that I am at fault in my sin? This is why. You love it. You love it. You love every second of your sin. That is the passions of your flesh. You, you desire it. You, you actually think about it. You, you plan for it, of how it can happen, of, of how it can be done. You, you will bait people into situations so that you can just sin. You say, Pastor Tim, I have no idea what you're talking about. I guarantee you do. I guarantee if you're married, you've baited your spouse before just so you could yell at them. You've set up a situation in a scenario to say, let's see what they do. I know what they're going to do. They're not going to put the dish away, but we're going to find out if they're going to put the dish away. Three days later, the dish is still there. And what do you do? You yell at them. What'd you do that for? Oh, that's passions, evil desires of your heart. And you just got so happy over it. But it's sin. It's sin. Even those of us in this room today who I said, remember, this doesn't describe you. This describes who we once were. We still, we still fall to this. We still fall to this. Every time in our life that we choose to sin, and I said that the right way, we choose to sin every single time. What we do is we say, God, excuse me, you're in my seat. Could you get down from there and let me sit there? I have a better idea. I have a better plan. I, I have a better strategy. My body tells me I want to do that, and I'm going to do it. I'm God today. I'm the one that's most important today. This is what happens when we sin. We place ourselves on the throne, and we just love being on the throne. We love us some us. It's something that we fight, even as Christians. I think you would agree. Every day. It's a battle that we face. 
And as we grow in our faith more and more, I think we see the depths of that struggle in our heart more and more and more, don't we? It becomes more real to us because we realize how much we love ourselves and how difficult it is, first of all, to love God more than I love myself. But then next, it becomes really difficult to love everybody else more than myself. I mean, if I struggle with loving God more than Tim, you stand no chance. My family doesn't stand much of a chance. But we see the truth of God's word here of what Paul said, right? Who once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. So we don't only have a sin nature. We don't only find ourselves slaves to sin and being ruled by our master Satan, but we find out I actually really, really like the situation I'm in. It's one of the things that I laugh at. I hear Christians say this all the time. They see somebody who's rich or something on TV and we love to say, yeah, but they're miserable. Are they? Are they really miserable? I mean, I don't know if, I mean, sometimes, yeah, probably, but I don't know if that's always the case because sinners love them some sin. Uh, They probably really enjoy the life that they are living. They probably are excited to go to the next show or the next party or the next this or the next that. They're probably kind of looking forward to it. And we find ourselves oftentimes in the same thing. But this leads to the scary truth of what the end of verse 3 says. It says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see evidence of this wrath of God happening, I think, even presently. The wrath of God is not something that we should shy away from. It's not something that we should be scared to share with, being afraid that people will say, well, a loving God isn't that way. It's a truth of God. It's part of his character. It's what shows us his justice, actually, that he has wrath. And he's actually been kind enough to us to tell us he has this wrath on sinners, But I think we see evidence of it, like I said. I'm not going to read this, but you can read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. It, It shows us how in our sin, it often leads to deeper and deeper sin and into sin. We, we see that with the passages, right? We'll give them over to the lust of their heart and the flesh. And we see a lot of uh, uh, sinful sexual behavior there in Romans that will happen. And it's really stuff that we see today. It's stuff that we see happening today within our, within our own society. And as Christians, you know, we can sit back and be appalled by it. But really what it is, is it's the wrath of God being poured out on sinners. He is allowing them to be overcome by their sin of which they love. And you see that stair-step progression that happens. It was really funny. I was listening to a pastor from the 50s preaching a message on this, on this passage. And when he, when he talked about the wrath of God, he said, of which we obviously see evidence God is pouring out his wrath because look how bad society is today. Now, when I talk to some of you, the 50s were the golden age. There was no sin in the 50s. Everybody went to church. Everybody did everything. But this pastor seemed to think the wrath of God was just obvious and evident then. Well, we're 70 years removed from that. Deeper and deeper in the pit. And we see it. This is God 
allowing his wrath to be shown as people drift farther and farther from God each passing year. Now, I wish that I could say that that's only evident outside the walls of the church, but we do see, sadly, within the church, this is happening today. The youth, I think, just started a series on Wednesday nights, like an apologetics thing. But one of the things that they're going to get to, I don't think that they got to it yet. Pastor Scott was saying, I don't know if you guys have heard about this, these deconversion stories that people are doing. It's all over the place. And it's, it's former Christians or, or Christians, they would call themselves, I don't know. But they, want, they don't want to share their testimony. They want to share their deconversion story to how they realize this Christian faith is actually all a lie. Or when they realize that the Christian faith that they were grown to believe of the Bible actually isn't true, that God is love, God is harmony, God is is peace, God loves all people, God will unite all people. And they they walk you through the deconversion story and it has the same five to seven steps, all of them all together, but it's always leading away from God. It's always going away from God. And this has infiltrated the church very greatly. And it has a big impact on people because like we talked about in chapter one, they don't really know God. They know about him as a feeling. They know about him as an emotion and they're not feeling that. Therefore, it can't be right. It can't be true. It can't be real. They don't, they don't really have a firm grasp on theology, doctrine, and the truths of God and who he is. And so that's why we see these things. And so to think but the wrath of God we just see outside the walls, I just want to warn us of that because it's, that's not true. We see it in the walls too, where there's a lack of true belief. And so we see evidence of the wrath of God now, but we also know that there's a wrath of God to come. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28 to 31, it says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think this is a warning that people need to hear. It's not something that we need to shy away from. Again, if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ, please hear this warning. God is a vengeful God. He says, I will repay. You have sinned against me, your creator, your maker, and I have the last word. That's a scary thought. It's a scary thought to people lost in their sins. But again, the problem is, They're dead. And dead people don't hear a thing. You can scream at them. You can kick them. You can push them. You can pull them. You can do whatever you want. But that dead person will not listen. They will not be changed. This morning, I have no doubt, I am preaching to some dead people. In one ear, out the other right over the head, don't really care maybe what is being said or what you are hearing. And that's your choice. 
That's your choice. But I pray and I hope that that isn't always true. Because when we think about that, we fall in line with the disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verse 25, after Jesus has his dealing with the rich ruler and all that. He says how hard it is for a rich person to be saved. The disciples ask him because it says they were greatly astonished saying, well, then who, who can be saved? And I think after everything that I've said this morning, that really should be the question. Pastor Tim, you're telling me if I'm separated from Christ, but I'm, I'm dead, I can't do anything about it. What good news is that? Because you told me, you told me you were going to share with me the best news ever this morning. And so now what, I'm, what you're telling me is I'm sitting here and you've just told me I have the wrath of God getting ready to be poured out on me because I'm a sinner and I'm dead and there's nothing I can do about it. Thanks. Thanks. Let's go. I would agree with you. That's actually horrible news. And I have to wonder what the disciples thought when Jesus finally spoke up because they asked him this question, who then can be saved? And in the next verse, it says, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. So again, your heart is racing. This is impossible with man. Well, I'm a man. So I have no hope. I mean, there's nothing there. What do I do? Just go home. Wait for the day of destruction. Hope it's not as bad as we think. No. The same two words that Paul would pen for us at the beginning of verse 4 are the same words that Jesus would say to the disciples in this moment. And I stand here today thinking that this is the greatest two words ever said. The greatest two words to ever be uttered in any literature or on the lips of any person. Because when you hear everything that I've said this morning, I hope you feel utter hopelessness and helplessness. Because that is where you stand. But to God. That's the difference. The two best words ever penned in anything is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God. Yeah, you sit here dead. You sit here actually completely hopeless. But God stepped in. But God steps in. Because where you can't do, God does. God has done it for you. This morning, there's many people in this room who have sang the song, this is my story, this is my song. You, you know what I'm talking about. Our story, our song is but God. I sat there hopeless. I sat there helpless. I sat there a sinner, the worst of sinners, loving myself more than anybody all the time. I had no hope. I, I couldn't do anything. But my story goes like this. But God stepped in. But God changed that. Of all the things that we could discuss from the pulpit, there is nothing as important as these two words, but God. Until there is a realization that God must first move in a person's life before change can actually happen, then all of our attempts to change people 
are useless and a complete waste of time. Please hear that. We can strive as a church, you can strive as a Christian to do all kinds of good things, and that is fine. We can say our goal as a church is to end abortion, okay? Our goal is to stop human trafficking. We want to try to end wars altogether. Our goal as a church is we want to promote peace. We want to feed the hungry. We want to shelter the homeless. We want to encourage people to vote. We want to fight for our country. We think that is good. And whatever else you might say to me, pastor, this would be a good thing to promote from the pulpit. I have to tell you, it's all useless and a waste of time if we do not make it first and foremost our priority to tell people, but God. It's a waste of time. You can go to the Capitol and you can tell all the congressmen and everybody that abortion is horrible. Listen, dead people don't hear you. Dead people don't hear you. You can be completely appalled by the things that you see in this world. You should be, but it shouldn't surprise you because sinners love themselves some sin. That's what they like. That's what they do. And unless God steps in in their life and wakes them up, no, not wake them up, gives them life. Unless God steps in and gives them life, there will be no change. There will be nothing different. We could hand out food until our, until our fingers fall off, until everybody in Monroe County has so much food, but there's a problem. The problem isn't that they're hungry. The problem is that they're sinners. Our government can keep handing out money. It's kind of nice, actually. I keep getting it. I just keep getting it. It's great. It's not going to solve any problems because our problems isn't finances. Our problem isn't relationships with other countries. Our, our problem isn't COVID. Our problem is sin. And all those people who are lost in their sin are dead. They are completely dead. And there is only one organization, if you want to call it. There is only one group of people in this world who can help this world solve the problem with the message that they've been given. And it's us. It's the church. And the answer isn't political. The answer isn't financial. The answer is, but God stepped in and he can change your heart. But here's just the truth. Most of the time, they're not going to listen. Most of the time, they're not going to care. There's not going to be some Christian utopia society that we can go to and just be at peace with God and with everybody because of sin. Because of sin. It really makes me think of the story of Lazarus. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but I do want to read a quote from George Whitfield, who was an evangelist, revival guy, ways back. But you know the story of Lazarus. It was Jesus' friend. He got word that Lazarus was sick. He said, Yeah, I'll go and see him. People were expecting him to go to heal his friend. But then when Jesus finally said, You know what? I'm going to go over there to Bethany, they're like, He's already dead. There's no point. Jesus says, no, I'm still going to go. And he goes, he still goes and he makes the trip and he's met by Lazarus's sister who says he's dead, but she shows a little faith and saying, but I know who you are. I know what you can do. 
And he, he goes into town and he, the Bible even tells us that he's, he weeps because this is somebody that he loved. It was a good friend of his. And just like you and I who've done this before, Jesus stands in front of a tomb of his friend who's been dead at this point for four days. He's been dead for four days. And the Bible tells us that he, Jesus ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's really an interesting story because the sister's like, you know, he really stinks by now. We probably shouldn't roll the stone away because we're all going to smell that and it's kind of gross. And you think about the emotional ramifications too of that. That's his sister. I don't want to see my brother like that. I know he died, but I don't want to see that. I don't want to smell that. I don't want to have to go through this. Let's not do this. But yet Jesus in his great power and his great might, he tells Lazarus to come forward and Lazarus walks out of that tomb. Now, some may say Lazarus chose to do that. I would call those people, uh, what's the right word? Ignorant, maybe? That's not what I would call them, really, but I'm standing here. You might say Lazarus tried with all his might, and that's how he walked out. But I tend to think that dead men don't walk out of tombs, except for when Jesus calls them. George Whitfield put it this way. He's much more eloquent than me in talking about sinners. He says, come ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave cloths, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Be not afraid. Smell him. Ah, how he stinketh. Was he bound hand and foot with grave cloths? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruption. And as a stone was laid on the sepulcher, so is there a stone of unbelief upon thine stupid heart. Perhaps thou hast lain in this state, not only for four days, but many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting, thou art as unable to raise thyself out of this loathsome dead state to a life of righteousness and true holiness as ever Lazarus was to raise himself from the cave in which he lay so long. Thou mayest try the power of thine own boasted free will and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments, which without all doubt have their proper place in religion. But all thy efforts exerted with never so much vigor will prove fruitless and abortive till that same Jesus who said, take away the stone and cried, Lazarus, come forth. Also quickens you. For many of us today, we're thankful that one day you heard that. You heard Jesus. You heard him say, hey, get out of that tomb. You don't belong there. You don't belong there. You're mine. You're part of my family. I will save you. I will cleanse you white as snow. Come and be alive. Come and have life more abundantly. No longer slave to sin. No longer your master is Satan. No longer does your forefather Adam hang over your head. No, no, no. I'm the new Adam. Come to me. I never sinned. Oh, I died, but I conquered it. 
because I'm alive again. Aren't you thankful that you heard that? I believe for some of us this morning, maybe you're hearing that for the very first time. You're sitting here in your sin. You're sitting here in your stink. You're sitting here in your filth. And you're thinking you just heard the worst message ever because you feel horrible. But yet then we talk about this Lazarus story. We talk about this but God thing. And all of a sudden in your heart, you are hearing for the very first time, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. It's time for you to come out of that grave and live life in me. Would you by faith believe that this morning? By faith, would you believe that? Now to me, from where I stand, if God is calling in your heart and you say no, that sounds about as dumb to me as Lazarus saying no. Just, just being honest with you. Lazarus busted out of that tomb. Life again? Let's do it. For you, it'd be life for the first time. Free from your sin, free from your guilt, free from your shame. Not because of anything you do, but because God stepped in. Because verse 4 says, but God. I hope that's true in your life today. I hope it's real. I hope that this really is the best news you've ever heard. I hope that when you walk out of this room, you can say, it was the most electrifying, exciting thing I've ever been to. Why? But God... Oh, the music stunk. I mean, Pastor Tim stumbled over so many things. But when we looked at verse 4, compared to verses 1 through 3, you got to be kidding me that that's real. This is the best thing I've ever heard. You need to hear it. You need to be a part of this. You've got to understand what's going on. You've got to know who you are, but what God has done and who you can be in him. I really can't think of anything better to say. (laughs) I really can't think of of a better and I, and I mean that when I say that. If we could feed everybody in the world, it wouldn't be better than this news. And so I hope you take it to heart. I hope it's true for you. I hope you praise him daily because he showed up in your life. And I hope for some of you this morning, you're surrendering to him, your life, your all, because you know and realize for the very first time, he is your savior, the one to give you life from death. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning and we'll sing a song here in a little bit. Give you a chance to respond to the word of God. God, it really is uncomfortable and you, you know my heart and so it's silly to hide it. It's uncomfortable to preach sermons on sin. One, because I'm a sinner. So I feel like a hypocrite. The other reason is I just know people don't want to hear that. I don't want to sit and listen to how bad I am all the time. I don't want to be around people who constantly show me my faults each and every day, all the time. So God, I can understand that coming to church, we don't want that. We want to feel good. We want to worship and praise you. We want to leave being excited about what you're doing. So God, as we approach a passage like this, I know in my heart it sink a little just thinking, oh, service might be a downer. God, I pray that we would grasp the reality of how big verse four, those two words are, but God in comparison to those first three verses. 
God, that should cause us to be so thankful, so excited about who you are and what you're doing, no matter what we're going through in our life, no matter how difficult it may be, but to understand that we are yours and you are mine, that that wipes all that stuff away. It doesn't negate how bad it hurts or whatever's going on. God, it helps me put it into perspective that you will never let me go that you raised me from a dead life, slave to sin, serving my master Satan, but yet you would bring life from death. So God, I know there's many of us today who can praise you for that, and I pray that we would. I pray that we would adequately praise you with our life, giving you our everything. Uh, Like Romans 12 tells us, where we're no longer slaves to sin, but we become bondservants of you. We want to do everything you would have for us. So God, I pray that we would do that. God, I I pray for those this morning who are wrestling in their sin. They, They know they're separated from you. They know that your wrath will be poured out on them if they would die today. They know they live with no hope in themselves. God, I pray that you would help them to see the truth of your word that you have stepped in. And as verse four goes on to say, that you're rich in mercy, that you love them, and that by your grace, you save them. God, I pray that they wouldn't hold back today, that they would do that by faith, just believe in you, trust in you. And God, we know that you accomplish your work in their life when that happens. So God, we thank you for the truth of this word. I'm thankful that you stepped in. I'm thank you for those two words, but God, That without that, we're hopeless. But with it, we gain absolutely everything. So God, we praise you now with this song. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Sing. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.